Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. In this episode of Cork Talk, we sit down with Diane Courier of Honey Girl Meadery in Durham, North Carolina. If you're under the impression that mead is more like beer, think again. Mead is actually honey wine and has more in common with wine than beer. Honey Girl Meadery makes mostly dry meads meant for pairing with food. Diane's passion for the craft really came through in our conversation. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we did recording it. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So today we're here with Diane Courier of Honey Girl Meadery in Durham. So Diane, welcome to Cork Talk. Thank you so much, Joe and Matt. It's really great to be here. We're happy to have you. So Diane, tell us a little bit about who you are and some of your backstory. Absolutely. I came into uh, mead making from a home brewing environment. Uh, I started home brewing when I first moved to Durham in the early 1990s. Uh, was It was a way to make new friends in my new town. And uh, it's a really great way, actually. If you start brewing anything, a bunch of people kind of get interested in that. So uh, that just brought me into the whole world of fermentation. And then after trying mead, I became utterly fascinated by it. I really wasn't didn't have it on my radar at that time I was brewing beer, but I was visiting my sister in Alaska, and I had my first taste of mead. It was a very... Um, magical time, not only being on vacation in Alaska in the summertime with 24 hours of daylight, outdoors all the time, and we had hiked through a field of Alaskan wildflowers called fireweed, um, a big sea of pink flowers on this gorgeous Alaskan day, and that was the day that I went to my first meadery, and they said, would you like to try our fireweed mead? So I'm drinking this new thing that I'd never had, uh, and I couldn't help but be like, I was just up in those flowers. I was just walking through those flowers today, and now here they are in my glass. So I got hooked on mead really in that moment, but came home to my beer brewing buds and said, we're just going to make mead from now on. We're not going to make beer anymore because I really want to learn everything I can about this uh, new thing, that I, new to mead thing. So some of our listeners may not be familiar exactly with what mead is, so can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So mead is honey-fermented wine. Uh, I'm going to use wine as a shortcut, and I consider it uh, to be wine, and we're using wine equipment, but it can be a lower ABV, so um, it can be a little bit like cider. Some people come and say, well, I thought mead was like beer. We all think about, uh, we weren't there, but we see the mead halls with the giant tankards, and it looks like beer to me, too. Modern mead, though, I would say is more wine-like. What I see here in North Carolina uh, ranges from the wine strength meads to the carbonated session uh, meads coming out of uh, Black Mountain and Good Road in Charlotte. Uh, who are both making sparkling meads. I really like that North Carolina kind of covers all the many modalities of mead. Some of us are making wine-strength mead, so it's fermented with honey, water, and yeast, and we're using honey in place of grapes. Uh, And that's another good shorthand for people to, to think about mead as just wine made from honey rather than from grapes. Very cool. So now uh, you came back from your experience. You went to your home brewers uh, group that you're part of. You said, we're going to make mead. It's really interesting you. How did they take it? What were their thoughts? Well, they were really along for the ride, Matt, <laughs> honestly. So um, great. We're going to make some other kind of alcohol, and we're going <laughs> to bottle it and cap it and cork it. Well, that okay. sounds like fun. We're on board. They were happy to go where I was going to lead them, like the Pied Piper here. So it was my social outlet and theirs as well. Mostly uh, fun to bottle and and enjoy what we might have made before. So they came right along for the ride. That's awesome. So what about me really interests you? What sparked it? Um, uh, honey. Okay. What sparked it really? That initial walk through the field and then capturing that field in my glass was really the the main attraction that I had for mead. Once I started making it, it really brought up how much I like to cook, uh, the, just the experience of putting flavors together. I, I really, uh, the, I think of myself as a kitchen cook and coming from a very creative background. So when I first got into mead making, 
I was just playing, playing, try, try, trying different recipes, trying different fruits, looking things up on the internet. It was very early in the mead making movement, really. We're talking the early 1990s. The modern mead movement, I placed that uh, closer to 2000 and moving forward. So really when I was first getting started, there was less information than there is now about um, fermenting with honey. It's very different, uh, and I like that challenge. Also, everything that I would learn about honeybees and honey um, just attracted me more and more and more. And when you think about it, you're making wine from, from honey. And the honeybees, that goes back to billions of visits, to billions of flowers. You have so much to work with there that's just really um, magical. It has an alchemy that's really exciting because honey itself is, I could go on for a really long time just talking about honey. It's amazing uh, what bees do. We think of honey maybe as the thing we put on our toast in the morning and it's that straw-like color. Uh, but if you have a chance to try other honeys, it is a huge range um, from that from that straw-like light-colored honey that we're so familiar with in our tea to really bold, dark honeys that are almost like molasses-like right. um, to very floral. There's even spicy honeys. Just it's very different experience, and we can't uh, get into that flower and gather that pollen and gather that nectar and make that only honeybees can. So I am just, if I sound in awe, it's because <laughs> I'm in awe. Uh, more people should read about honeybees and learn about what they do. It's utterly fascinating. They're uh, worth protecting. Another whole sidebar there, but uh, we have a lot of interest in honeybees right now. Um, we have a lot of interest in, in honey. And so I do also see a growing interest in mead. And I think mead can help um, raise awareness about honeybees. Sure. So there's a lot tied in there that I love. I'm a flower girl, nature girl, uh, <laughs> uh, kitchen cook, creator type of personality. So there was a lot that attracted me to mead making. Very cool. So now the name Honey Girl, how did you come up with Honey Girl? Honey Girl um, actually uh, just came about, uh, my partner suggested it one morning after I had spent days <laughs> in the intellectual space of this or that, esoteric, this, that, really too much headspace, too much, too much thought. I can be, um, I can definitely be uh, challenged with overthinking. And uh, she popped out, uh, what about Honey Girl? And I was like, oh my gosh, uh, that is a great name that you just captured everything that I love. Um, the beehive is very female-centric. Uh, so the real Honey Girls starts right in the beehive. Right. They are the ones who are gathering the nectar and making the honey. So there's a real strong female uh, energy in a beehive. I'm obviously a female uh, brewer, a winemaker, uh, so that was important to me to mention as well. And here we are in the South, Honey Girl, Sweetie Pie, from a really nice place, you know, that's just part of the South. That's awesome. That's really cool. The creation story there behind that was just something that we never really knew, so that's, that's really cool. And sometimes the best names just happen to come right out when you're saying, how about this? And it's like, oh my gosh. Exactly. So I would say, you get it. sometimes it's good to just get out of your own way and uh, let things happen more naturally. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about moving from that home brewer, home winemaker, to actually moving into a commercial space with now Honey Girl Meadery. Excellent. Um, quite a journey there and very, very different um, from where we are today, almost five years into it. Making that change, I... Um, spent time talking to anyone who had stainless tanks. Any went to cideries. I met Ben and Becky Starr at Starlight Meadery who were incredibly generous with their time and information. In fact, honestly, those two are the best. And I, they're a big reason why I'm here with Honey Girl too, how open and welcoming they were. I find that in all of the uh, community of mead makers and certainly winemakers and brewers as well. It's a very collaborative environment, so that helped. 
uh, as someone coming from the homebrew world into something that could be perceived as very intimidating. People do go to school for this for years, but what they're going to school for is winemaking. That's what's available out there, making wine from grapes, and it's wonderful, but um, there's very little professional training in mead making. So mm-hmm. we're, we're a scrappy bunch, and we kind of do what we can with winemaking knowledge. So I knew that as a kitchen cook, that was my approach, very creative approach, that I needed to beef up the science side. So I looked around the area, and uh, Surrey Community College as you know, offers an, a wonderful, uh, well-respected program in enology and viticulture. Again, winemaking, grape-based and, and fantastic. So I took some stuff, uh, some classes from them. And through them, I also uh, got hooked into the VESTA program, which is nationwide, hooking up uh, beginning winemakers. And again, it is very wine-based, but these were fantastic classes. And I took a... Um, uh, chemistry, winemaking chemistry, chemistry in winemaking class through the University of Wisconsin that was incredible. This was at several years after leaving college, going back to school, uh, and literally we were chemistry on Tuesday night, straight up, periodic tables, uh, liquids, gases, and functions, and uh, chemistry, and then Thursday night, which was my favorite night, the professor brought us back to wine and said, why do we need to know this chemistry thing that we just learned on Tuesday? Here's why in the wine world. So that really helped uh, just uh, bolster the science side. I um, also went wherever I could and volunteered. I bottled with Starlight. Um, I went up to... uh, um, a foggy ridge, uh, which, you know, the cidery, Diane Flint, very, she's just incredibly generous. Uh, this was during my talk to people with stainless steel tanks. And so I went up there and shoveled apple pumice for a day (laughs) on a pressing day. Just great to be in that environment and get to talk to, uh, the people that I was volunteer or working with, get to talk to the makers and, uh, see how they were working with their equipment. So shiny stainless tanks and people that like to talk about them. That's awesome. So, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, your growth then. So when you were talking your first early days about talking to people with stainless steel tanks to actually making your first couple commercial meads to where you are now. So talk to us a little bit about the early days and the transition and how you really ramped it up. Fantastic. Um, yeah, uh, the beginning of the meadery was building out the meadery and going through licensing. So... That's just a, one part of it that we probably won't talk a ton about, but my first 18 months at Honey Girl were about going through that process. Okay. Um, having trenches dug in the building to prepare the space uh, was very far from mead making or wine making, but it's just a necessary part of any startup that you're going to need to go through your licensing landscape, and ours happens to be very deep because we're making alcohol. But uh, I then, once I got my TTV permits, and, and, and that landscape several years ago was different than it is now, very time-consuming um, at the time, and that's streamlined a little bit more now. But let's get to the fun part. I started making mead uh, in, nine, in, in 2014. We opened in October of 2014. Uh, we got our licenses early January of that year. So I made our first batches of mead. I... Uh, had variable volume tanks, had made decisions for the equipment that we had here based on being able to scale, being able to start a little bit smaller and then scale up. I have the variable volume tanks also because I wanted to work with fresh fruit. And I knew that from year to year, I might be getting different volumes of fruit and making different batch sizes. So I felt like my startup would give me room to grow but allow me to start with maybe a 100-gallon batch instead of and ramp up to a 400-gallon batch, which is essentially what I did. I made three. We opened with three meads. We had strawberry, blueberry, hibiscus, lemon thyme were our three meads that we opened with, and we now have over a dozen on the lineup. Uh, Mead takes time. Um, I would say our meads run between uh, four months to a couple years from start to finish. So each year I might add an additional mead 
style or one additional need, so the lineup would grow very slowly and steadily. I, in the early years, was the mainly the only full-time person doing the entire operation, so when I look back at it now, it's, uh, it's a natural growth for a lot of small businesses. You're always going to wear a ton of hats, but literally at that time, it's overwhelming to think about it now. Honestly, uh, I don't know how I was making all the mead, then going to the farmer's market, then coming back to the meadery, then running the tasting room, then making more mead, and also running the business somehow. Literally, it was very un unsustainable, but it's what you do uh, with your passion to grow it. And I had enough other skills from my pr prior professional lives to kind of bring it for the back of the house and the front of the house. And I had some great part-time help to uh, who I brought on immediately. So it was me as the only full-time maker, but I had people to help me out at some of these markets. I quickly saw that it was not at all possible. Um, and, but it still it was a couple years before I was able to bring on another person full-time. Uh, that happened two years ago. So we were already a few years in and I hired Allie, our operations manager, who that was a real life-changing moment for Honey Girl Meadery, allowed uh, someone else to, and a very talented someone else, I have to say, uh, to run our social media, to run the tasting room, to really grab a hold of the whole front of house operations for me. And Allie brought a ton to the table. As soon as she came on board, I started getting a lot of compliments about our social media. Hmm. And I said, it's Allie, I have a great person doing it. And uh, she really organized all that for us and helped to build the momentum on the front of house so that I could focus more on making meat. Uh, it's obviously very important that we have the product, but it's a big operation. Even though we are tiny, we're in a 1,500 square foot space, little small, uh, always looking for more elbow room. But through the years, we have made these, I call them baby step efforts. It's a small operation. Things are made with two to four hands here. I've been making the mead solely on my own for the first five years. I just hired an assistant. So uh, we are having this really small growth path. It was part of my goal to have, be able to hire, support five full-time people within five years. We're close. Uh, we are at three full-time people right now, four to five part-timers. So uh, I feel like we're on track to stay this small but really dedicated crew. I call us small but mighty. And somebody said on one of my tours, oh, just like the honeybee. It is and just I'm like the honeybee. Like, Whoa. I was, I was just thinking that. I'm like, that sounds just like a honeybee. It does. Yeah. That really pulled it all together for me. And I loved hearing that because it does take a village to do anything like this and a ton of passion. So talk to us a little bit about the style, your style of mead mm -hmm. or varieties of style that you have. Absolutely. I am making wine strength meads primarily. Our first five years has been focused on making about a 12% ABV mead. I like to use local fruits, local flowers, and herbs in our meads. And I am thinking of them as lighter style. By that I mean our meads, I uh, really prefer the bone dry to off-dry, up to semi-sweet style of mead, personally. Um, I have had many fantastic dessert strengths, sweet meads, but my coming at the mead and my appreciation for mead is in exploring all those nuances from honey, all those nectar sources. When we're fermenting the sugars out of honey to make meads, we're really peeling back the layers and we, what we're left with is all those nectar sources, really all those flowers that the bees visited. Because that's my interest, our meads tend to be delicate, um, lighter style. You will taste honey. It is definitely, these are made with honey, and we want you to know that honey is what makes them so special. But they're also going to be extremely food friendly. So our lineup is going to be uh, a, a range of rotating seasonal meads, strawberries, blueberries, figs, things that we bring in seasonally from local farmers. 
Um, and uh, like we're just now going to release our lavender mead. Here we are at the height of summer. It's lavender harvest season, so I like to bring meads out with their season. Our strawberry came out for Mother's Day at the height of strawberry season, just to really bring the sense of, again, going back to that field of flowers, that drink the field is really the key mission and philosophy of Honey Girl. So I'm always looking to give people this really unique experience of a field, whether it's a field of flowers or a field of fruit um, in your glass. That's a really special thing. So that's my motivation for Honey Girl Meadery. And what's behind really all of the meads is to have that intention. We're also experimenting with a new substyle of mead or a subcategory of mead uh, called session meads, sparkling meads, or draft meads. Very fun, uh, new to me to play with this category. I've had some really excellent examples of it. These are usually under 7% ABV, a little bit more like cider, and they're carbonated. I'm a huge fan of cider and carbonation. I love to drink seltzer, and, um, and uh, more and more, unfortunately, I can't drink beer. So I get my carbonation kick from cider. And now in the mead world, uh, these sparkling session meads just allow uh, people to have a very approachable, so for some it's more approachable connection to mead. It's got some familiarity of carbonation familiarity like a cider so people have been uh, our early experiments we just started experimenting with session meads this year we have two of them on our lineup right now our ginger peach and our lavender lemonade and they are just delightful sparkling light summer give me a pool give me a backyard take them to a party very approachable and so we just got started with those two Baby steps, um, we're working on finding some packaging solutions for those because people are wanting to take them home with them. Yeah, I can, I can totally see why. I mean, we just tasted the, the lavender lemonade, and it was, it was so relaxing. Like you said, just give me, the, give me a poolside. Just, yeah, I wanted to sit outside and just enjoy sipping on yeah, this. Beautiful. You also make sizers. So let's talk a little bit about... What is Sizer? And awesome. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Sizers have been uh, a love of mine since the beginning. We've had a Sizer on our lineup, and a Sizer is a style of mead made with apple. Uh, it's All of the meads have these ancient Old English terms for them because mead is a big umbrella. Honey is the umbrella. All mead is made from honey. But when we ferment with different things in addition to the honey, they have wonderful names. I love the name Methaglin, which is a mead made with spices or herbs. So our hibiscus uh, lemon thyme is a Methaglin style. Methaglin being Old English for medicine. Oh. So when you think about ancient meads, they were considered medicine. They were taking herbs and spices, fermenting them with honey. I also read that Jane Austen made meads. So there's this historical <laughs> aspect that's really nice, and that floral medicinal methaglin is another area of extreme interest for me. Um, but back to the sizers. So sizer, our sizer uh, is made of North Carolina fresh-pressed apple cider. Originally, we got that from Hendersonville, North Carolina, uh, but the, uh, the cidery we were working with was uh, transitioning to sell their juice to a natural juice mm. maker. So they didn't have any extra cider available for us. So I called our friends at uh, Bull City Cider Works who uh, let me know that one of their local sources is Perry Low Orchards mm -hmm. in uh, North Wilkesboro. So they are fantastic, and I go and get my tote of 300 gallons of their fresh-pressed apple cider, different every year, a different blend for what's growing. I tend to like the late season because they're a little bit sweeter. Some of the Pink Lady is there often. It's a beautiful uh, varietal that they grow. But anyway, different uh, apples will be in that cider. So that cider comes back to the meadery, and I pump it into a tank, and that's, that's the base for the mead. I add honey to that and yeast. So most of the building blocks of, of mead are honey, water, and yeast. But in this case of sizer, there's no water. It's just the apple cider. So you have this really strong apple backbone in those meads. We make our apple sizer, which is a dry, crisp apple sizer, um, 
I consider that my lawnmower mead because it's so <laughs> thirst quenching on a hot day. I like to super chill that down for the summer. And then we also make a, a slightly sweeter version of it, our spiced apple sizer, more like apple pie. A very popular mead style that a lot of meaderies do because it, it's delicious. <laughs> so I guess a technical question then on the sizer. So like with, with standard meads, you're, you're adding water to the honey to kind of dilute it to the right sugar level that you want to make sure that it ferments to the right alcohol. So when you're adding in just cider then, do you find yourself adding less honey or do you find yourself with the ratio being different? Great question. And yes, I do. Uh, there's a, when I have the cider, literally brings in almost half of my fermentable sugars. Wow. Okay. So I measure that cider and then see. But it's about a 50. Uh, the honey is going to dominate, uh, so slightly more honey than the cider. Our traditionals might have about a three pound of honey per gallon of mead ratio. And with the sizer, I might dial that back to a couple pounds of honey cool. per gallon. But what you get from that is we have a lot of fermentables in there, a lot of poundage. Our fruit meads have a couple pounds of fruit and a couple pounds of honey in every gallon of mead. So talk a little bit more about those local ingredients and what's your process for sourcing those ingredients and, and that sort of thing. Fantastic. We are at the Durham Farmer's Market. We joined the Farmer's Market in 2015 in our second year of operations because we work with local fruit, flowers, and herbs, so it seemed like a really great fit for us. And at that time, uh, I had a few relationships with farmers, and through my experience at the Durham Farmer's Market, have met several more. I sourced some of our ingredients directly from the market. Our ginger comes from the market. Some of the hibiscus roselles are coming from there. The uh, lemon thyme... And I just got some carrots from a local farmer as well to, to work on a test batch. Oh. Uh, something coming up. I'm very interested in the savory side as well. Uh, something to play with that yeah. I haven't played with before. But our normal process for, say, strawberries. I met our current strawberry farmer when we were at the Holly Springs Farmer's Market one season. They were uh, my neighbor vendor. And I knew upon setting up, once they got out their strawberries, I was like, that <laughs> smells delicious. What kind of strawberries do you grow? And he grew the uh, style called Chandler's here in North Carolina that are so aromatic and they're very delicate and sweet. They just melt in a mead. And so through that uh, meeting, they now supply us with our local strawberries. We bring in a couple hundred pounds of strawberries at a time. We process them by hand here, rinse them just like you would at home, cut off the green tops as we don't want that. Then we freeze them up on a tray. Then we put that tray of frozen strawberries into a container, and that's how we can build up our couple few hundred pounds of berries for the batch of mead. We'll keep those in the freezer. That'll just help intensify the sugars a little bit and the strawberry flavor. Plus, I want to release it, you know, at the next strawberry season. So each year we're gathering the strawberries at the same time we're releasing the batch made from the prior year. And kind of in that way, we, we have vintages just like the wine world does. And right. that's kind of how I think about the fruit needs too. Talk about capturing the field and you're capturing that different vari variables of sunlight, how much rain, all of that uh, affects the needs. So I, I really love working with fruit from uh, local farmers. Definitely means a commitment of time and energy and space. It's a labor of love, I'd have to say, especially when I'm taking several hundred pounds of figs off-site to roast them, to bring them back, to make the mead. We've just lovingly caressed all of that fruit through its journey to become a mead. And it's all part of that drinking the field and taking that experience of local fruit or flowers uh, and, and capturing it in a bottle. Very cool. So you had mentioned vintages, and I know that's a great concept to make sure that you're really understanding the growing season of that year and really capturing everything that happened. How well would you say... Uh, does mead age over time? So like you maybe make a mead like 10 years ago and just open up a bottle today. Absolutely, and I have done that, and um, they are delightful. Mead ages really beautifully, and the, I equate that to all of those nectar sources that have, have 
been fermented and are in there, mead can mellow and deepen. It's it's weird to say that because it sounds like one is fading and one is deepening, but that is what happens. The the flavors mellow and they also intensify. So all those different floral bee, bee visits um, change over time with aging. The traditional meads, to me, just beautifully age for years and years. Our fruit meads also. We have done some verticals since we now have almost five years of existence where we've tasted our 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18 meads, and they're different throughout the years. Some of that is just our growing curve, too, and the learning curve on the meads. I feel like we're they're just getting better and better, um, but they're also the differences from year to year growing in the field, the field differences. Cool. So let's talk cocktails, mm. meat cocktails. You're doing a lot of creative things and other folks and so talk a little bit about that and how did it get started and where would you like to see it go sure absolutely mead uh, is such a versatile beverage that you just want to start playing around with it when you think about its base ingredients i think this is part of the reason it's so fun with cocktails since it's made from honey and fruit what would you do to make a cocktail you'd often include a simple syrup and right. some fruity aspects so mead just is a natural playing ground for cocktails. We got into it by meeting someone at the farmer's market, or meeting, actually meeting someone who came into our tasting room, and they started talking with their friend about, oh, I would make this with that, and I would do this with that. Oh, oh, this would be fantastic with gin. Oh, this would be so good with vodka. Um, and they just started riffing on them, and we started talking to them, and developed a relationship where we invited them back, said, would you ever come play with us and make some cocktails for us? So they were a couple of cocktail aficionados, came to play with us uh, at the meadery, and then we contacted a local bar to have an event where we could present, because we don't have a liquor license here, we're a winery, um, so we, we joined up with a local bar, had an event there where we took these five recipes that we developed with the cocktail aficionados and did a little contest there and people came out to the bar and voted on those and our winning mead uh, ended up being featured in uh, a book on mead called The Art of Mead Tasting and Food Pairing by Chrissy Mannion Zarapur. Fantastic book. Uh, most meaderies have it. You can come and reference it here at the meadery or uh, buy a copy to take home. And it's got that cocktail recipe as it, also it's on our website. But that's how it got started. We had that event at the local bar. People really loved it. The winning cocktail was called All You Mead Is Love. <laughs> love the name. And it's made with my all-time favorite hibiscus lemon thyme mead. So, and it's pink. So I was pretty happy about <laughs> the outcome of that experiment. From there, it's been, along with food and mead pairing, kind of a growing hobby of mine. As I mentioned, I love to cook, I always have, I love putting flavors together. So intellectually, we can make pairings just by thinking about the core ingredients, whether that's going for a cocktail or whether it's gonna be some sort of food pairing, thinking about the ingredients that are there. Also, since Allie came on board as my operations manager, she's very good. She's a very skilled cook, and she's very good at making cocktail recipes. So now I credit her with taking the evolution of this forward. She's developed a ton of recipes that are on our website for different cocktails. She test batches them at home, um, and she's also really good at food pairing. So we have a lot of fun with that. You get two kitchen cooks together who <laughs> like flavors and mm -hmm. love to cook, um, and you're going to get some great results. So I would encourage people to play around not only with cocktails, with mead, but also with a mead and food pairing. A really fun event for someone to do at home. You could start as simple as a mead and cheese pairing. Just as you might design a wine and cheese pairing, mead is going to play in that realm really well. I think you mentioned maybe a... A pairing for us earlier today, putting yes. the Humboldt Fog cheese with our lavender mead, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I could totally see that. And we offer in our tasting notes food pairing suggestions. We're always looking to play with that, whether it's a like-with-like -like pairing 
or whether it's a nice opposites um, and contrasting pairing. That's awesome. So, I mean, so many places we can go with this. So let's let's stay on the food pairing for another couple moments here. What's your favorite meat and food pairing? I would, I have two that I think of immediately. Um, for me, and I know I've mentioned the hibiscus lemon thyme a few times, but this is my go-to meat when I'm going to a holiday meal. I like to take that meat because the earthy um, herbal notes of that mead, and this is a dry style mead, real herbal, a little bit floral, but that earthy tone, it's made with North Carolina wildflower honey. So it pairs beautifully with Thanksgiving, with Christmas, with all of those festive meals. It's my go-to when I'm going somewhere to a dinner party because I know that it's um, off-dry herbal earthiness will be a nice complement to something on the menu. Another pairing that comes to mind immediately that I love is, uh, and was introduced to me by the cheesemakers, is from our friends at Prodigal Farm. They make goat cheese, and they have a blue that is, I think, called Saxapaha Blue. We met them at a, another farmer's market, and we were also did several events with them out at the goat farm. They came up to us and said, did you know that blue cheese and apple are like the most dynamite pairing ever? I did not know that at the time, but I know it now, and it really is a nice pairing. So there's a perfect contrasty one. Blue cheese and apple is a really lovely pairing. This is our apple sizer, mm -hmm. but you could try it with our spiced apple as well. That would be interesting to kind of layer on some of that, you know, the fresh fruit, the kind of funky blue, and then the mellow spices. Yeah. That would be interesting. Exactly. We did something recently where they were really loving, it was, a, it was another meat and cheese pairing uh, at Fifth Season in Carborough, and they were kind of loving the strawberry with a blue. Mm. I mean, a hot, spicy strawberry with blue. So you never know where those um, combinations are going to come from. That's why it's a fun party. You can let people have four different styles of cheese and kind of pursue the best pairing for each one. Nice. And kind of an off-the-wall pairing for each one. That's where that strabonero blue cheese thing came from. Yeah, you never know what's going to work the best. Exactly. It's, yeah. Hmm. So when we're talking about the strabonero, I'm not a person that typically likes heat. Mm -hmm. So Diane had poured us some... The strawberry and the mango habanero meat, and I must admit, I was pleasantly surprised at not only the fact that the heat was there, but that it paired so perfectly with the fruit, and it was a nice little balance. It didn't set you on fire. It was just a nice, hey, there's heat there. There's some complex flavor that's in there. It was wonderful. The strawberry, I think, was my favorite, though, of those two. But yeah, I think with the, excellent. with the spice in that strawberry, it really made it seem like the strawberries were roasted. Yes. So it was like That's a nice, juicy, blackened, balsamic strawberry with a nice tingle on the end, and it was, yes, like mm. Joe said, it was really good. I think you just came up with another great pairing, yes. too, Matt, for some <laughs> yes. balsamic strawberry salad with a little cheese on it. Oh, yeah. With yes. that strawberry. I'm nice. really glad you like those. Yes. but. I've always wanted to play with that heat and sweet combo that we experience in food uh, in the beverage. It, it's long been in other beverages, too, but uh, these were our first experiments with the habanero, and I was very happy with them as well. Definitely we'll see some more of that coming out of Honey Girl. Yeah, and I think you nailed the balance, too, because sometimes when they're in other in beers or anything else like that, they're just way too hot. You can't taste anything afterward. These left you wanting more. Yes, left exactly. You, you know, I, we could still finish. You put them in the middle of the tasting, and we could still finish the rest of the tasting and not have our taste buds completely blown away. So that was that was great. Really excellent point. Yeah, we don't want anybody to cry <laughs> from having their hot pepper meat. Only tears of joy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you mentioned your current mead, uh, your, your current favorite mead, or your all-time favorite mead, is the uh, hibiscus lemon thyme. You mentioned some of the reasons why, but tell us a little bit more about what you really like about that. And do you, do you find that there are parallels to that, the fireweed mead that you tasted? Oh, well, that's so nice. Uh, the fireweed mead is such a, fireweed is very, very delicate honey. And there may be some, but I think that's unparalleled. I don't make anything that's quite of that uh, in, 
light intensity, I want to say, the fireweed. However, um, I'd like to play with it at some point. It's actually kind of difficult to work with, hmm. that honey, because it is so delicate. So you're really having to um, tease it out like a master to get those floral notes to come forward. My mead tastes do change with the seasons. I mean, as, as I'm sure others would understand our how we eat changes with the season. So people always ask me what's my favorite and it is ever changing. Um, it often is, you know, the saying it's the one in the glass in front of me. <laughs> um, but right now with the, just releasing that lavender, that is my summer that quickly becomes my summer favorite. So delightful to have that lavender, lavender mead mixed with lemonade or on its own just be that summer moment of flowers and relaxing because you have that aromatherapy going on with the mm -hmm. lavender too. So I'm a little bit in love with that one right now. And when we move into the fall, I get out what I call my sweater weather meads. They're so nice. You know where we're going to go with that. It's going to be oaked or the apple, all the tastes of fall. I want darker meads, just like we might transition from being a white wine drinker in the summer maybe even on ice cubes, all that refreshingness. I'm looking for all those meads right now. And then we might go into a red wine winter or even a brown liquor winter. I feel the same things can happen in the mead world. Hmm. And we can bring in that wildwood, our oaked, dark wildflower traditional mead can be, I just want to be around a fire with my sweater on. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I totally agree with you. Like as the seasons change, so do our taste buds. And mm -hmm. we find different things refreshing about the different drinks and beverages we have in front of us. So, so let's talk a little bit about, we've, we've hit on this some, but what are some of the things that you've learned over the years of doing business, making mead? So many lessons. Um, I am a, also a lifetime learner, so I'm open always to learning, and I think that that is key. If you're going to open a business, a couple of that qualities that I would say are absolutely critical. One is to really dig deep and know what is your connection to that thing that you are going to do. That's where, when I tell that story about the Alaska fireweed mead, that's my dig deep and the reason that I want to do this because that second quality you need, extreme tenacity, <laughs> is going to require that you have that touchstone. It's some wild swings, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, a lot of setbacks, a lot of uh, agility and uh things coming at you from a lot of different angles. So that tenacity is needed to get you through the hard times, but also that touchstone is critical. So I've learned to come back to that touchstone, stay in touch with why I'm doing what I'm doing, and it makes the long hours and the hard physical labor um, so much better to remember why I'm doing this. And the other thing that I would say that I've learned that's critically important, at least knowing yourself is going to be critical for opening a business. Knowing what feeds you and what you need and how you, how you best operate, what your strengths are and what you need to hire around you is really important. As I've grown the company from you know, me and one part-time person to this small crew, very dedicated folks, I've needed to recognize, you know, what I'm not good at. <laughs> There's plenty of things that I'm not and what uh, I need to support that, how I need to support that so that I can move forward. I mentioned the overthinking. I tend to do that. can be really helpful maybe in trying to dial in a mead recipe, um, but can be a little bit stalling out in trying to, you know, be really adaptive to the marketplace. Um, so I have a great crew that helps helps me through that. Other lessons learned in the business, boy, you really don't know what you don't know. <laughs> it is so key. comes up for me a lot. Those first 18 months of construction, I mean, the building existed, but these were testing me so outside of my general scope uh, that you don't know that you're going to go through all sure. that necessarily. I often think that 
you you really got to love there are I don't know quite how to say this, but I used to make pottery and I turned that into a business and it was a very small business, but in a lot of ways depending on the business you choose, people say you could take the your fun hobby thing that you love and not love right, it anymore right, if right, it became right. a business. That that danger is definitely there and so but having the touchstone coming back to that really having a mission for Honey Girl Meadery. I still love making mead. When I got those carrots and I'm going to make a test batch of carrot mead, I'm super excited about it. That sounds fascinating. I know. Think about, I'm driven often by color and taste. Uh, Just beautiful carrots, that light sweetness. We're going to accent that with ginger and turmeric. It's actually a soup recipe (laughs) that I'm going to make into a meat. Interesting. You know, there's inspiration just about anywhere. My other thought would be, like, maybe go the cake route and you can make, like, a carrot cake. I love it. Came into my Isn't head. Isn't that funny? Oh gosh, I love it so much. Okay, well, there will be a, the fact some, that, me, I was like, that oh. will go into the bank of consideration there. And nice maybe. pairing with the, the spiced apple size, or you could totally carrot cake. You see, yeah. this is why I need people around me all the time. <laughs> so uh, we were talking earlier, uh, and one thing we haven't really talked about yet is um, you classify yourself as an urban winery, and you are set right in downtown Durham. So what are some of the things that you've learned about running an urban winery? Absolutely. It is very unique. I'm really glad you asked that. I've only come around. Our identity is still evolving here at the, at our almost five year mark. As an urban winery, we are in downtown Durham. We're right off of East Main Street. Uh, At the end of our block is a brewery, Pony Source Brewery, two blocks away is a cidery. Another block in another direction, High Wire Brewing, just opened a 10,000-square-foot facility. And then right across a busy street, we have a local distillery that's making a Lithuanian spiced honey liqueur. That's killer. So, Krupnikas. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's so, so good. Talk about seasonal drinking. That's all you need in the snowstorm. Absolutely. Forget the breads. Forget the milk. Forget the Krupnikas. That's all you need. So we've got this really awesome uh, neighborhood of diverse alcoholic beverages. There's also a wine um, bar a couple blocks away right next to the cidery. And in this urban environment, we have been trying to find our identity. Here we are. I don't have a 10,000-square-foot facility with a giant tasting room. I have the 1,500-square-foot facility where we make the meat. All the magic happens, and a small tasting room. Um, winery as a destination doesn't really work for our model. Uh, we have daytime hours. We're very successful with our Saturday and Sunday business. We've tried to grow some weekday business. I don't think this is necessarily unique to an urban winery, but daytime business challenges, I think, are everybody's challenges. But finding the hours that are appropriate when you're surrounded by bars and breweries that are open until midnight. I don't want to operate a bar, so we're kind of in the middle. While we open from 4 to 8 on Thursday and Friday, then our Saturdays, 12 to 8, Sunday, 12 to 5 so that we have a mix of hours. Um, There is starting to be more and more foot traffic around us, and we are looking to do more collaborations with our neighbors. We currently have one, uh, the brewery helps us clean kegs, uh, which is super, super nice of them. It's something that is a piece of equipment we don't have here on the facility, and when we wanted to start playing with the session meads, and also with bringing kegs into the meadery just for serving our meads, how we were going to clean them was definitely a consideration that we had to figure out. And perhaps in this case, being an urban winery really helps because we've got lots of great neighbors nearby um, willing to help us out. Very cool. Yeah, it really kind of adds to that vibrant scene. So you, you start getting growth, you start getting foot traffic in, you're really attracting people to it. You mentioned winery as a destination is really hard, but it's almost like the urban center as a destination. So you get everyone around you, you get everyone interested, businesses start to grow. It's kind of just good for Durham in general. Absolutely. And what we've seen on our end of town is exactly that. When we came over here, uh, it was really the edges of town in 2014. And now we have all those other vibrant businesses around us and more to come. 
we're finally going to get a restaurant at the end of the street. So <laughs> that's going to be phenomenal. That'll be great. From the Sam's Bottle Shop people. So it's going to okay, be great. really great. Really great. Excellent. Awesome. So switching topics again. Mm-hmm. So talk about some of the advantages of making mead versus making wine with grapes. Absolutely. Um, totally different. I, okay, first, full disclosure, I have not made wine from grapes. Okay. But I have attended a lot of right. winemaking sure. classes, and I definitely drink wine. So I have some familiarity with that. However, when I think about, of course, the differences in the key ingredients, and we're working with honey as a fermentable sugar as opposed to grapes, there are uh, some similarities in that we are also trying, as mead makers, to bring out terroir. It happens to be a slightly different, uh, multifaceted. It is still soil and sun and air and earth, but we're talking about bees now. So when we're looking at terroir and a mead, the billions of places that the bees went, those right. seasons, the differences that are there. This is, oh, just, I'm going to go into my swoon over honey and bees because where the bees forage at different times of the year, think about our spring ephemerals and the delicate spring wildflowers that come out. We've got the delicate, those notes coming during that part of the year, all the way to the fall where we've got trees and um, poplars and goldenrod uh, imparting some stronger, bolder notes into the honey. Just as a winemaker is trying to express the personality and the characteristics of a specific grape varietal, we sometimes are trying to work with a specific honey varietal. You know, there are monofloral honeys where the honey has been gathered from a single floral source. I think of sourwood Mm, as one of those. (laughs) I know, right? Oh, it's such a delicious honey. It is. And Starlight has played with that beautifully in their sourwood mead. Or Tupelo. Hmm. Um, We use orange blossom as a varietal where the beehives are in orange groves. And in that way, we are trying to bring that bee experience in the orange grove of them buzzing all over those beautiful little uh, orange blossoms. There's such an orange blossom characteristic to the nose of that mead. And yet then it's followed up with honey that has a hint of citrus. We don't add any citrus to our orange blossom. It's all coming from bees. (laughs) Ah, it's just like crazy. Uh, So that's our parallels to wanting to express what what our ingredients, where they came from, and all of the influences. And then when we're adding fruit, of course, we get even closer to the winemaking experience. We might be cold soaking our blueberries. We actually did do a little bit of that. We just started a cranberry mead. We did a cold soak on that. We'll do a pump over on that. We'll do some pump. Uh, we'll punch down our fruit on that. So we have similar uh, techniques and similar tools to the winemaking world. I just am madly in love with honey and honeybees <laughs> and flowers and getting the chance to express those nuances um, just as you'll find that passion in a winemaker for the grape that they absolutely love. Um, I just absolutely love honey and honeybees. So we'd be remiss. We talked about your favorite mead. Do you have a favorite honey? Mm. My honey exploration has really just begun, but I will say it's a, a favorite of a lot of people. I haven't played with it yet, but the Meadow Foam Honey from the Pacific Northwest, it tastes like marshmallows, <laughs> and there's so much you can do a little, uh, a little bit of a heating of that honey and caramelize some of those sugars and get some toasted marshmallow there. So... I think it would be a really fun one to play with. I know that. Exactly. (laughs) And Ben's made that at Starlight. Totally nailed it. Um, With some meadow foam. I wouldn't say it's a favorite honey because I am really loving real earthy honey. So I guess from a taste perspective, I lean towards some of those more earthy. Wildflower is a personal favorite, and that is because it changes all the time. Yeah, and that really expresses the terroir, like you said, of wherever their bees were collecting. So Mm -hmm. that's awesome. 
So, you know, over the years of doing business, um, what has left the biggest impact on you? Mm. Whoa. <laughs> I told you you had some really thought-provoking questions <laughs> on your list, and this is definitely one of them for me. I have many touchstones to meet, and many things have influenced me. Going into this business, it, this is one of the things that leaves the biggest impact. Entering a business where other business owners are your collaborators and supporters. I don't think I would have become a mead maker if it was more like a widget maker. Mm. And my competitors were my competitors, and it was a dog-eat-dog world where nobody wants to help anybody. I would not survive in that. I am an emotional, uh, warm person who likes to connect with other people. Um, I gain energy through being around other people, and yet I work alone. So... Um, at least I have up until this point in the making. Um, so what left a big impact on me was to be welcomed into this community. Um, it's huge. It's the real reason that I'm here is because of how much fun it is to be with other makers, to totally geek out on mead. <laughs> we know most of the mead makers in the U.S., even though there are 500 meaderies in the U.S., we know a lot of, we know a lot of the other makers. And we are all very supportive of one another. People say it's like the craft beer movement in the 80s. When something's just getting started, you really feel like you're a part of something. Um, you're all in it together. And everyone's cheering everyone on. That is the type of environment that I really want, that I can thrive in and that I really want to support. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but thinking as you were talking through that, it's another parallel to the honeybee. Because it's still like, you know, they're all doing their own individual work, but they're all working together. Oh, my God. I was just like, <laughs> just like the honeybee. That's so beautiful. So what do you most look forward to in the future? Okay, the other thought-provoking <laughs> question. Wow. As I, thought, as I thought about this one, I, I have so many layers to that, and I am a glass-half-full person, so I really want to stay positive. But as a business owner, I'm going to just mention the overwhelming part that this question brought up for me, what do you most look forward to in the future? As a business owner, I feel like I'm pulled in a million different directions, and I wanted to answer that by saying uh, uh, some time on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair answer. That is. A very fair answer. I most look forward to that at this really stressful time of just making, 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 going, 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 um, trying to grow the business, and all the things that go into it, I have been just full on, um, full on with this business. So that was my honest, what I most look forward to. Um, but I also, from a business, from a meadery, for Honey Girl Meadery, I most look forward to the day when our um, space has attracted just an ever-growing audience. We have such a beautiful audience right now. People who come here are so nice. Um, I love that about this business also. They are, can get engaged in me from a honey perspective, a bee perspective, or just as a craft drinker or a person walking by on their way to the brewery. I love it for people to discover us, and I want us to become a little gem, a little treasure here in downtown Durham. So I most look forward to just really expanding that audience, and, and I love when I come up to the meadery and the picnic tables outside are full, and there's a bunch of dogs and <laughs> babies and families and people just having a great time at the meadery. I most look forward to seeing a lot more of that. That's awesome. So we're winding down here. What's one thing that you want your customers to know when they come visit the meadery? I want them to know that they will be welcome. They do not need to have any wine knowledge, mead knowledge, come in as a blank slate. Uh, we are incredibly friendly. We will tell you everything you want to know or leave you alone to just enjoy the mead on your own and have fun with your friends. The whole range is possible here and we are, you'll have a chance to really go where the bees go if you come and try mead here at Honey Girl. 
It's a, it's a great philosophy. <laughs> so, Diane, we really want to thank you very much for being on Corp Talk today, for having us in. It was great catching up with yes. you. We look forward to more conversations in the future, for sure. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you, guys, You're so welcome. much for everything you do for NC Line. Thank you. And me. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Diane for the engaging conversation and sharing her passion with us. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. This helps others find our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free run. LLC production.